The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles and open them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I know you might still be turning there, but this is a a wonderful text. Uh, Many of you probably know it by heart, so even if you don't find the scriptures, you'll recognize it as soon as I begin to read. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse number 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Our study today is in this very well-known text that is a favorite of many. Uh, Before we began the exposition of 1 Thessalonians several weeks ago, this might have been The only part of this epistle that was easily recognizable to you, Uh, many people have heard it many, many times before, they read it as a comforting uh, scripture, so this might have been the only part of the uh, the book that you could recall, because the earlier parts of 1 Thessalonians are often passed over just to get to chapter 4 and to the discussion of this next event on God's prophetic calendar. That event, we all know, is the rapture. And what will happen to us at the the end of the world is a very intriguing subject that captures not only the attention of those who know Christ as their Savior, but also the secular world wants to know about these things. People are interested in what will happen at the end of this world. This is a text that's often read at gravesides. Uh, If you've attended funerals and been to cemeteries, you've probably heard this read at some time or another. The body is put into the ground with the hope that the body will rise again. We know that Christ will return. We know that those who are alive, when he returns, will be raised to reign and rule with him. But there's a question here, and and this, this text concerns this question. What about those who go into the graves... People who die before Christ comes, what will happen to them? Do they lose their position in God's kingdom? And this is one of the questions that troubled the Thessalonians and is the reason that Paul wrote this passage of explanation. Now, we do remember that Paul was in Thessalonica only a short time. He started a church there, but then he had to leave very quickly because of persecution. He just escaped barely with his life. And while he was there in that city, he taught these new converts as much as he could, but they weren't very well grounded in the faith. Paul didn't have time to spend with them to teach them all the things that they needed to know about the Christian faith. We'll learn when we get into chapter 5 
that Paul must have spent a good deal of time, though explaining this part, explaining the end and about the judgment of God that is to come. So these are people that know that they are saved. They know they will escape judgment, but they didn't know very much else. In other words, they were much like modern Christians. They didn't really know very much. And most modern Christians don't know very much about the Word of God. And we do need to learn a lot more. Now, we've, we've seen that conversion to Christianity uh, among the Thessalonians was radically different from what they were as pagans. The morality was different. Uh, a life of holiness as taught by the Ten Commandments, that was strange and unknown to them. Romans chapter 1 tells us that the law of God is written on our heart so that people instinctively know the difference between right and wrong, although this knowledge that we have of right and wrong is incomplete. Every person has a conscience that convicts us, but the Bible also says that, that the conscience may become seared, the conscience is infected by or affected by the indwelling sin nature, so that the Bible says that our will, our conscience, our mind, everything about us is, is, is affected by sin. Sin ravages the mind, and that is what happened to these pagans in the Roman Empire. The Greeks and the Romans were at the bottom of a moral quagmire. Some of them had descended into what the Bible calls in Romans chapter 1 a reprobate mind. Many of the Thessalonians were at that place. But then one day there was an itinerant evangelist who came to town with a message from God. The true God of heaven and earth sent a man by the name of Paul to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And his appearance there in Thessalonica, was one was directed by God himself. The Holy Spirit sent Paul there. In fact, the Holy Spirit would not allow Paul to go anyplace else but Macedonia to preach. And here are people, unbeknownst to them, they were chosen by God to receive the message of Jesus Christ and to receive salvation into their heart. Now, when we think about this, we, we think that it's radical that God would save any person, that God would, would take people, especially like these, the ones that we read about in the Bible, in Romans and in, and, uh, in, in other places of the Bible, people that had changed the incorruptible image of God into images that they worshipped, images like creeping things. And as Romans says, they, they had dishonored their bodies between themselves in gross immorality. And we think that is, that is truly a miracle of God's amazing grace that he would save people like this. But they were saved. They were saved through the fearless preaching of the Apostle Paul. They believed. They received what he said as the truth of God. That what Paul said was the very gospel of God. And they learned about salvation and they received Christ as Savior. But salvation was not all they needed to know. If they were to grow in the faith, if they were to be sanctified, if they are to have faith rule their lives, then they need to have a perfect knowledge, a more perfect knowledge of Christ. Now, it's very good for us to study the entire letter of First Thessalonians rather than just skip over to this memorable part about the resurrection and about the coming of Christ. No, we need the first three chapters. We need the beginning of the fourth chapter because there uh, Paul speaks of the development of the Christian faith. Our sanctification is dependent upon greater knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now Paul was concerned about that because 
As soon as he left them, uh, he knew that the little knowledge they had would be attacked. That persecutions would come. They would be mocked for their faith. And with that persecution, they would have a, a desire or be tempted to turn back to their old lifestyles to help in that persecution. And Paul knew if they did this, they would be uh, of no use to the cause of Christ. Christians with poor testimonies are set aside from God's service. Paul called that being a castaway, and he didn't want that to happen to them. And so, although he had left, he sent Timothy, his companion, back to Thessalonica to check on their spiritual condition and to encourage them in the faith. And Timothy returned with a report that said they were doing well, their faith had not failed, they were persecuted, but they were struggling through. And he also said their faith was deficient. They were saved, but their faith needed to live as as good Christian was not yet developed. They had questions about doctrine. They needed to be sanctified by learning more. And so in chapter 1, Paul discovered through Timothy's report three vital areas, three vital areas that are foundational for Christian growth were there. He speaks of faith, love, and hope. And in the end of chapter 3, Paul prayed for better development of those three areas, faith, love, and hope, which he called, uh, or put it under just this terminology of calling it perfecting their faith. That included increasing their knowledge of Christ so they would learn to live like him. It included increasing their love for each other so they would excel in love. Now, the beginning of chapter 4 is the apostles' instructions in two vital areas of faith and love. And now it remains for Paul to deal with this third area. This is their hope. What about their hope? How can he perfect their understanding of their hope? Oh, they hoped to be delivered from the wrath to come. They hope to escape the judgment that will come on all unbelievers. They hope to see Christ when he returns from heaven. Now, these were all things that Paul taught the church while he was there. But it wasn't good hope if there's confusion. And it can turn into troubling hope if they don't fully understand it. And this is another part of Timothy's report. Their understanding wasn't good. They were confused by the excessive persecution, thinking they might have missed Christ's return. Now, if you look back at chapter 1, verse number 10... Paul said there that Christ delivers us from the wrath to come. And he says they were waiting for the return of the Son from heaven. And so if the Son of God comes from heaven to deliver from the wrath to come, and they're not yet delivered, does that mean they've missed the second coming? Well, that was confusing to them. It was troubling. They were confused enough that some of them quit their jobs They were just sitting around waiting for the Lord to return. And when that wait became long, they didn't have jobs, so they began to freeload off of others to eat. They were idle. They became busybodies with nothing else to do. And this is one thing you learn about Christianity. It doesn't seem to have much hope if you don't understand. And believing makes you miserable every day. And there's yet another problem. What about Christians that died? while they waited. In the few months since Paul was gone, some died. Some through persecution, some naturally by disease or old age. Christ hadn't returned. So what happened to those Christians that died? 
And this is, the, this is the issue that Paul addresses here. This is why he's talking about this subject. Is there hope for those who have already died? Will they reign with Christ? Or will they be second class in the, in, in the kingdom? Now, I want you to understand that this text does contain much hope. There's comforting hope. But it's not a text that explains everything there is to know about the second coming. In fact, we can't know all there is to know. We can only know what the Bible tells us. The text doesn't give us all the details, but before we're through with First and Second Thessalonians, we'll take in some other parts of the Bible where we do learn more details about the coming of Christ. Now, I have a very, very busy outline in these sermons. It'll take more sermons to go through. But before we go there, we, we need to talk for just a few minutes about the promise of Christ's return. We don't know when it will be, but we have the sure promise it will happen. There is a question about what Paul believed concerning the imminent return of Christ. Now, in case you don't understand the language that I'm using, an imminent return means that Christ could come quickly, that he could come at any time, that his return is impending, that it's looming, so that Christ could return today, he could come tomorrow, he may come in our lifetime. Did Paul believe that? Well, it's sure from this text that Paul taught them that the return of Christ was imminent. They could expect it in their lifetime. Otherwise, they wouldn't have this concern that they might have missed it. Uh, there wouldn't have been the intense excitement that was generated when Paul said Christ is coming. Uh, there wouldn't have been that excitement that the return could happen so quickly that they could actually even quit their jobs and sit and wait for it if Paul hadn't taught them that the return of Christ is imminent. We look at it and we think, well, was their confusion unreasonable because Paul said nothing about it? Or did he, in fact, teach that Christ could come immediately? But in their thinking and what they heard was a misunderstanding. They thought he was guaranteeing, assuring them that Christ would come immediately. You listen to what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 13. He said, and that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. The salvation that is nearer is a reference to the rapture and the resurrection of the body. The day is at hand, he says, and that is a reference to the fast approaching time. And then in chapter 8, verse 23 in Romans, And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. Paul says we are waiting for the redemption of our body, and he, and he says that as if we can expect it to be soon. And then by way of example, uh, with many other scriptures that we could use, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. He said, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Not all of us will die, is what he's saying. Some of us will be changed. So it's very clear that Paul included himself in the possibility that he would be alive when Christ returned. And we must understand that while Paul guaranteed the return of Christ according to his own promise... Paul never taught them that it was actually guaranteed in their lifetime. 
Now, sometimes he wrote as if he would be alive when Christ comes. At other times, he writes as if he expected to die before Christ came. For example, in 2 Timothy, he wrote, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. His departure is his death. He wrote 2 Timothy from prison as if the executioner was right at the door ready to take his life. And Paul writes as if he doesn't expect Christ to come in the next hour or in the next day or in, in just a few weeks or whatever to save him from that terrible time. He included the possibility that he would die before Christ came. Then he goes on in the 8th verse to say there's a crown of righteousness that's laid up for all those who love what? Christ appearing. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. So he tells Timothy, and he tells Christians in that time, and he tells Christians today that we are to keep looking for Christ to appear, while at the same time acknowledging every one of us in here today may die before that happens. Another reference is Philippians 1 verse 20. He says, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. So there he acknowledges the possibility that he would die before Christ comes. Philippians 1.23, for I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Well, it is wonderful to look for the coming of Christ. But what he wants to teach us here is if we should die before Christ comes, we'll not lose out. To depart, to leave this life and go to be with Christ, if we must go through death, that's still good. And remember that because it's going to be important in our sermons a little bit later on. So I believe the question is answered. Did Paul believe that Christ could come in his lifetime? Yes, he did believe that. Was he deceitful in teaching that we should look forward to it while we live, when he knew better that it wasn't going to happen? No, because he doesn't know anything other than what the Lord told him. So the question for you is, should you believe that Christ could come today? Should you believe that Christ will come before you die? Yes, the Bible says, believe that. We don't set dates. We don't know the day or the hour that Christ will come. And it's precisely because we don't know he could come at any moment. He may come today. It might be tomorrow. And it very well could be before you die. Then the scriptures also teach the utility of recognizing this, uh, this truth about Christ coming. To believe that Christ may come today is very good for us. It's, it's our hope. It's comforting for us to know that we're going to see Christ face to face. And our hope is that this life will get better. That it could happen at any time. Christ could come now and then we'll see him and life will be better for all of us if he comes. Now the return of Christ is an encouragement for our sanctification. The Bible says that we are to be busy about the Lord's work. We're not to sleep on the job. And we just read that in Romans 13, 11. It said it's high time for us to wake out of sleep. And so as the people of God and as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, our problem is we waste too much time. And we do too little 
of the Lord's work. We act as if we don't believe that Christ could come at any time. John also taught his converts that the return of Christ was imminent. He said, we must abide in Christ so that when he appears, we'll not be ashamed. John was an old man when he wrote that, but he wrote it as Paul wrote. He said, we. He said, we can have confidence not to be ashamed when he comes. John, of course, is the author of that great apocalyptic book, the book of Revelation, where he has the fascinating vision of the future. And in the end of that book, in chapter 22, he said, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And that sounds very much like the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians after he wrote about Christ's death and resurrection. And he said, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. What does that mean? Let him be anathema, maranatha. That means let him be accursed. Why? Because our Lord comes. Maranatha, our Lord comes. Now the Lord uses his imminent return as an incentive to serve. This is one of the reasons that we don't believe that Christ will come in the middle of the tribulation or at the end of the tribulation. If that was true, then we'd have the possibility of setting a date for his return. If we started to see things in Revelation unfold and we were to say, oh, that's the sign that Jesus is coming back and it's going to be in three and a half years or it's going to be in seven years, then we set a date on it. It removes the suddenness of the Lord's return. So we don't believe that the tribulation has anything at all to do with the coming of Christ, that Christ's coming precedes that time. Paul told the Thessalonians, Christ will return They should look for it, they should expect it, and they should work, and they should be holy. But it was this incomplete knowledge of that return that confused them and caused them great concern. They weren't comforted because they thought they missed it. Some that died, they thought, missed their chance to be in the kingdom. And these people that were living and had these questions for Paul, they wonder about it too, because how terrible would it be for them to go through all this persecution that they have endured, only to find out they're second class. They're going to die. They'll, they'll die before Christ comes. They'll be second class in the kingdom or no class at all. So what is their position? What does God promise them if they should die before he comes? Does death rob us of hope in Christ? No, the apostle says it doesn't. And then he'll end with these words. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, in our remaining time today, I'd like us to look a little bit further at the explanation of the passage. We'll get our feet wet just a little bit in it today. Uh, And we'll finish our time today with this observation. The sorrowing saints. I want to talk to you about the sorrowing saints. Verse number 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren... Concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Now, notice first the persons he addresses. He speaks to the brethren. Now, that is a New Testament technical term for believers. In this sense, the term brethren always refers to believers. The brethren here are converts in Thessalonica. And by extension, as we read this passage, the brethren are both men and women who are believers here in Berean Baptist Church and all other Christians that have their hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we note before we go further into the passage that there is no hope for unbelievers. 
The, the passage does not refer to you if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ to the saving of your soul. This is not a passage that speaks to you. This is a passage for the believers, for the brethren. Now, we, we need to go elsewhere for more information to find out what happens to unbelievers. But we're sure of this, that the passage indicates to us there is a contrast between believers and unbelievers. Believers have hope, while unbelievers have no hope. Chapter 1, verse 10 says, we are delivered from the wrath to come. Who? Who are, who are we? That's believers, the brethren. Unbelievers suffer the wrath to come. So there isn't any reason for unbelievers to hope that Christ will come. First of all, I don't believe that they'll see it. And then second, it brings destruction on them. So the message that we preach today here is not to unbelievers except by inference. Paul didn't speak to them, although there is something for the unbeliever to learn here, and that is there is no hope if you don't believe in Jesus Christ. So Paul speaks to believers, to the brethren. He said, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. He might have left out that comma and said, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. Both ways are true, isn't it? Now, we've spent some time on that problem in the past, Many Christians are part of the ignorant brethren. Some are content to know very little about Christ. Oh, they, they know they're saved. They say, I know I'm saved. But they don't know much else and they don't want to know much else. And Paul would call them ignorant brethren. There's so much to know about the faith in Jesus Christ. There's so much to learn about him. There's so much doctrine that will help us and build us and encourage us. And people miss that because they are ignorant brethren. Many times Paul referred to ignorant brethren. He, he said this so many times. Romans 1.13, Now I would not have you ignorant brethren. Romans 11.25, For I would not brethren that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1, Moreover brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Ignorant brethren are a great concern to Paul. And I will say they're also a great concern to us. We don't want you to be ignorant. And this is why the Brian Baptist Church is a teaching church. This is why we take the Word of God, we break it down verse by verse, and sometimes even word by word, so that you can very clearly understand what the Bible means. So that you understand doctrine, that you come to the full faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ that we find in his word. So we are determined that we will teach you what you need to know. And that's because there is a problem if you remain in ignorance. Oh, so many times people say ignorance is bliss, but I'll tell you ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance does not bring happiness. Ignorance will leave you unfulfilled and discouraged just like these people. There is no comfort in ignorance. And so, as in this text, ignorance made these believers sorrowful. That is, they were sorrowful for the wrong reasons, over the wrong things, and in the wrong way. Now, notice what this ignorance did to them, because this is, this is a terrible thing to happen. Just look at the depth of those sorrows. Paul said, it is as those who have no hope. Now, let me just ask you, in light of all that I said... Who is it that has no hope? Unbelievers. They sorrowed as unbelievers. Now, can you imagine this? How can a person who knows Jesus Christ 
sorrow as an unbeliever. Well, that can happen. And you know how? It's if you lack the same spiritual knowledge that unbelievers have. Then you'll have no hope as an unbeliever. Well, we don't want Christians to be ignorant and without hope. We don't want Christians that have no more joy than those that are lost. We don't want Christians that, that mope and they can't function as Christians because they're ignorant. Writing to the Ephesians, Paul discovered to them what their life was like before they were saved. He wrote that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. No hope without God in the world. And friends, when Christ comes, if people are not believers in Jesus Christ, there is no hope for them in time or eternity. If they're alive when He comes, or if they die before He comes, there is no hope. And that is a very sad, sorrowful state to be in. What must it be like to live with no hope? I don't know. Because I have hope. The lost have no hope. So if we speak to the lost today, it's only in consequence of speaking to the saved. We're contrasting us to them. We have hope and they have none. Warren Wearsby tells of an inscription that was written on a tombstone in a British cemetery. Pause, my friend, as you walk by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. Prepare, my friend, to follow me. There was a visitor to the seminary, uh, cemetery, seminary, cemetery who read that, and he added this line to it. To follow you is not my intent until I know which way you went. <laughs> See, I, I don't want to go to the grave without hope. I, I don't want to despair that the grave is where it stops. I don't think, want to think that the grave is where it ends and there is no further existence. We read this passage at the graveside of the saints because the grave is not the end. There is hope. I would not have you to be ignorant of this fact, brethren. There is hope. Now the scientist who says there is no God, who says that we are evolutionary blobs, the scientist and his students have no hope beyond the grave and neither do they claim there is hope. Stephen Hawking died with no hope. He looked only to rot and to be absorbed back into the molecules of an uncreated universe. Carl Sagan died with no hope. Most of you have heard of Madame Curie who with her husband Pierre discovered radium. In 1906 Professor Pierre Curie was run over by a carriage and instantly killed. Madame Curie hugged her husband's dead body and repeatedly bent down into his casket to kiss his face. Later she wrote in her diary, your coffin was closed and I could see you no more. They came to get you, a sad company. We saw you go down into the deep hole, then the dreadful procession of people that wanted to take us away. Jack and I resisted. We wanted to see everything until the end. They filled the grave and put flowers on it. Everything is over. Pierre is sleeping in his last sleep beneath the earth. It is the end of everything, everything, everything. Friends, that's no hope. Without Christ, people die with no hope. And their best thought is that the, the grave is the end. So they have lived to no purpose 
and they die to no lasting purpose. Well, if only they knew the grave is not the end. Oh, there's no hope for sure without Christ, but that's not the end. The believer, unbeliever rather, goes into the eternal death of the fires of an eternal hell. And so it's no wonder that Paul says they have no hope. Now, when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he didn't want them to sorrow as those who have no hope. Paul met many people on his missionary trips that had no hope. As he, as he wrote this, he, he could reflect on the culture, a culture that the Thessalonians knew very well because the next place that he visited was Athens. He preached the gospel there and he reasoned with the two great philosophical schools of the time, that was the Stoics and the Epicureans, and both of those were very curious about Paul's doctrine. So they listened to him preach and they mocked him. Paul addressed their ignorance. He, he said in verse number 30 of Acts 17, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Notice that ignorance. A great danger of being in ignorance. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. What was it that they mocked? They mocked the Christian hope. They mocked the resurrection of the dead and, and the consequence of it, the coming of Christ. Now, in our text, Paul will deal with that. He'll deal with the bodies of those who died in the Lord. But for now, we see this as we look at it. Pagans, these pagans had no hope. Surely they did not believe this. They did not believe the body has a chance to live again. And to be fair about it, there were some of the philosophers who believed there was an immaterial existence after death. Socrates believed there was, but most of them didn't. If there was anything after death, it was for the soul to go into the grotesque underworld where they would moan their existence. Some, they thought, would fare better. Individual existence would cease, and then the soul would be absorbed into the being of the gods. There's no hope in that. So these people had no comfort when they thought about death. They couldn't, in any sense, look forward to death. Catalyst, a... Roman poet who died near to the time that Paul wrote our text said, When once our brief life sets, there is one perpetual night through which we must sleep. You hear what he says? A perpetual night. A sleep from which we can't and which we don't awake. And friends, that is nothing like the sleep that Paul speaks of for Christians. Now the Stoics held out a little more hope for life beyond the grave, but it was conditional and temporary. The best that it could be is what I spoke before. It was to be absorbed into the fiery substance of deity. And this might sound odd to you, but the Epicureans were a little more stoic about life after death than the Stoics. They said, if we are alive, death doesn't exist for us. When death appears, we no longer exist. Well, that sounds smart. That sounds ethereal, but it's basically the ignorance of having no idea what you're talking about. So they, they believe the only thing that you have here is here and now, and when you die, there is nothing. And it was that hopelessness that drove the old mantra of the heathen. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. 
That's still around today, isn't it? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Enjoy it now, because there's nothing later. Paul quoted that hopeless philosophy in the resurrection chapter. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it, it me? What, what advantage do I have if the dead rise not? Let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Jesus alluded to it, to the parable of the man who built bigger barns to hold all the stuff that he accumulated in life. In Luke 12, 19, Jesus said, And I will say to my soul, he's talking about this man who built his barns, I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And what did he conclude about that vain philosophy? But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night shall thy soul be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? You see why Paul's not happy with ignorance? Do you see how twisted the misunderstanding? There is no connection to the afterlife without Jesus. And that's not to say that there's nothing for the unbeliever. There is. Jesus said, Your soul will be required of you. So we see why Paul must address ignorance. How will the Thessalonians thank God for their salvation if it doesn't bring the joy of knowing that we shall live and that, and that we shall see Christ? What hope is there if being with Christ hinges only on being alive when he comes? Oh, it's, it's going to be wonderful if we're alive when he comes. But all is not lost if we die. They sorrowed because of misunderstanding and those who have no hope. Oh, but there is hope. And we'll see it as we learn more about this passage. Now we'll, we'll note as we go through the beautiful language. What happened to those who died since Paul left? What is their condition? Where are they? What hope is there for them? What does he say? He says they're only asleep. That's where we're going to take off next time. They are asleep. What does Paul mean by that? I mean, concerning those that are asleep, does he mean asleep in their bodies? Does he mean asleep in their souls? Does he mean both? How are they asleep? And when you find this out, you'll not sorrow as those who have no hope. And the answer to all these things is the great comfort of our souls. And this is the reason that we can sorrow differently when death comes, when Christians die. We sorrow with hope. Now, let me just close with this thought. Paul did not say to you today that if your loved ones die, that you're not permitted to grieve for them. You're not permitted to have any sorrow. No, he means that you should not sorrow as pagans. Oh, it's natural for us to weep over our loved ones when, when they die. We're not to sorrow for that one who is a believer in Jesus Christ as if they are unbelievers. And we're not, to sorrow if, we're not to sorrow in the same way if they are unbelievers. But the believer is one who has gone on to be with Christ. They've gone on to a place that is far better. So we are permitted to sorrow, but not for them. We're permitted to sorrow for ourselves. We've lost fellowship with them. We've lost their company for a temporary time only. Because if you are a believer in Jesus Christ... It means that you'll go and see that person again. You'll see that loved one again. You will know them. And you'll, that fellowship you have with them will be restored for all of eternity. As Christ lives, they live. This is why Paul says, don't sorrow as those who have no hope. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning your hope. 
Don't stay ignorant. Can I just tell you that? Don't stay ignorant of anything concerning Christ. Ignorance is always bad for the believer. Your comfort is in the increasing knowledge of Christ. And so my best, my best advice for all of you is to learn Christ. Learn more about Christ. Because the more you know, the greater is your hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We don't want people to be ignorant of this great truth. Oh, we want people to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we want our people here in Briam Baptist Church to understand very clearly that hope that we have in Christ. Lord, we praise your name for these wonderful scriptures that bring us that kind of hope. So, Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts today that you would give your people understanding of those things that we've said today. Help them in their their understanding of you. We just pray, Lord, that in everything that we do, that we're increasing the knowledge through the Word of God. As we read in in our opening exercise today from Romans chapter 15, there is hope in the Scriptures. There is hope as we learn more about Jesus. Speak to our hearts today. Increase our knowledge of Jesus Christ. Increase us in our sanctification. Increase us in our faith. Increase us, Lord, as we live daily for you. Let us have hope and live in that hope of Christ's return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707 584 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.